Hi everyone, I'm Brad Stone in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. As head of our global technology coverage, I lead a team of about 50 reporters and editors around the world, working on stories that range from WeWork's remarkable rise and dramatic fall to the SoftBank Vision Fund's culture of recklessness. I was excited to fill in the anchor seat for this episode because our subject is a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur and the author of a previous book I've admired, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. As an entrepreneur author and one of the most well-known venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road, Ben Horowitz and his partner Mark Andreessen have invested in some of the biggest tech names in the last decade. Facebook, Slack, Airbnb, Lyft, and dozens more. He's now focused on helping founders shape their company culture with his new book, What You Do Is Who You Are. Here's my conversation with Ben Horowitz, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz on Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Ben, books on corporate culture are not rare in the pantheon of business books, but books on corporate culture that involve a Haitian revolutionary, a prison gang leader, and uh, an infamous uh, Mongol general, that, that's unique. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration for digging that far back in history, profiling some uh, yeah. unflattering <laughs> portraits and using sure. that to inform modern business lessons. When you think about culture, it's really complex. It's a complex topic. And um, so I'll just give you, like it kind of started all from my own like experience as CEO where I was like, okay, how do I be a good CEO? So I ask all the old heads, like the OG CEOs, like, how do you do this? What should you focus on? And they're like, Ben, pay attention to culture. And I'm like, okay, got it. What's that? How do I do that? And stuff got very vague. And I always wondered, well, like, why was it so vague? How do you do it? And it turns out that, you know, all these little things that your employees ask themselves, like, you know, what do I like? Should I stay till five or till eight? Should I like return that phone call today or tomorrow? Should I like stay at the Red Roof Inn or at the Four Seasons? All that is dictated not by like your mission statement or your OKRs or your, all that. It's by your culture. Now, often a company yeah. is going to have a website and they're going to be they're going to be principles and they're on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Is that culture? Is that no, that's what you believe. <laughs> that's not what you do. And you know, this is why what you do is who you are. And this is what's so key about that but so then you get into it further and you go well like cultures not every culture works for every company like every company is trying to do what it's trying to do and it needs a culture that supports that so like apple doesn't need the amazon culture the frugality because they're high design they fly coach class yeah, yeah, yeah. everywhere yeah, apple yeah. does not they're yeah. probably pl flying first class well and their their campus is like you know they've got $5,000 doorknobs and stuff on the thing because like everything's got to be about like perfect design whereas Amazon is about low cost leaders so different cultures and so that kind of got me into well like in order to write this book I really have to understand like who solved the very hard cultural problems and also make those examples from like really different things so you open your mind up you're not just like i'm in silicon valley i'm getting these people with stem degrees and so forth you have to think about your people from first principles what do they walk in with 
So Ben, I want to take a step back and look at your own career. Mm -hmm. You started a company, LoudCloud, that became yeah. Opsor. You sold it to HP. You started Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm in 2009. Mm -hmm. How much were you thinking about culture in, in those two situations? Yeah, so I thought about it a lot at uh, LoudCloud, and I wasn't very good at it at all, you know, like uh, in retrospect, which is, you know, part of the motivation for the book. It was the hardest thing to master. I got better at it uh, at Opsware, but it was still not, um, you know, when you get into like, how do you get exactly what you want out of the culture? That was much more difficult. And I think that at Andreessen Horowitz, like I'm the best of the three, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's still a very difficult thing to get right. And I think that the, if, you know, when people ask, okay, like, why do you win? And like, how did you get to be like, uh, you know, at the top tier so fast? It's 100% a cultural advantage uh, in that when entrepreneurs deal with us, it feels completely different than dealing with other venture capital firms. And so that part has really worked to our advantage. And, and I'm, it's the thing that I'm probably most proud about everybody who works here on, um, but we're definitely far from perfect. Like, so like, and, and I, quite frankly, I've never met an organization that's anywhere near perfect. And, and building a good corporate culture, you, you have to be harsh sometimes. So you tell the story mm -hmm. of Reed Hastings yeah. transforming Netflix from a DVD to a digital company, and he stops inviting the DVD executives to meetings. Yeah. Like, do, does- Well, to the executive staff, yeah. the most coveted meeting and, in the whole and company, I'm, right? I'm yeah. sure they're not happy about that. So, yeah, so no, to what extent do CEOs need to, you know, to be tough and sometimes even cruel to create a good corporate culture? Well, look, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, sometimes uh, it's necessary and you have to be careful, right? Because are you, like, is the cruelness um, out of intent for like to be sadistic or is it to demonstrate the priority or set the tone. Like here, I find people $10 a minute for being late for a meeting. It's like, well, that person, you know, like she had to go to the bathroom. Why are you like finding her like $80? Like, you know, like people gotta go, you gotta go. But it's the cultural point is we really value the time that entrepreneurs have to spend building the companies. And so we plan to do everything from like finish our phone calls to go to the bathroom to whatever. And we are on time to that meeting. Um, and that's more important than how unfair that particular fine was for that person. As I was reading the book, I kept wondering, are great uh, cultural creators, creators of corporate culture, are they, are they educated or is it instinctive? Like, for example, did, did Bezos and did Reed Hastings at Netflix study this, or did they just have a sort of implicit understanding of how to build these cultures? Yeah, I, you know, that one of the reasons I wrote the book is I don't know what you would study. Like, it's tricky. I mean, I ended up studying you know, Toussaint Louverture, right? Like, so. And we you have to study the, the, Haitian, yeah, the Haitian slave Revolution, leader yeah. who, uh, who you, you write about. Like, how do you turn a slave army, guys who didn't even wear clothes, you, you know, into like an army that could defeat Napoleon? Like, how do you do that? That, that? that was just like an incredible question. And of course, Toussaint was obsessed with culture. Like, it was, he like every aspect of, of his thought process always went through this cultural lens. You know, as a leader, you can pick up on things like that and understand these, these examples. Um, but I think, yeah, no, look, a lot of it is kind of naturally understanding how people are gonna behave. If you, you know, if you do this, then they're gonna act like that. But Toussaint is interesting, because he's not perfect, right? He, yeah, no, no. he becomes a slave leader himself. Yeah. He asks uh, his soldiers to be monogamous, and, and, and yeah. he is not. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the title of the book is, uh, you know, who you are mm -hmm. is what you do. 
-hmm. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a contradiction there that sometimes good cultural leaders are not perfect themselves. Oh, 100%. And I mean, you know, I mean, like, uh, even like with Jeff Bezos, right? Like, you know, here's a guy who um, is a great cultural leader, and then all of a sudden, like, he's in the tabloids, and it's crazy. <laughs> and you're like, what, what happened, Jeff? But like, that, they were humans. I don't think there's anybody that's 100% end-to-end, and that's what I, you know, like the, the difference between people who get, you know, massively criticized for their cultural flaws and people who get, you know, super praised is a lot thinner than you might think on a lot of these things. Um, but, you know, it's what you do organizationally, right? Like, what does every person do? How do they all behave? And, you know, is that who you want to be? Or is that far from what you want to be? And I think that, um, and the other thing is it changes and evolves, like over time, like you can have a good culture and lose it. You're listening to my conversation with Ben Horowitz, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz. Up next, we unpack why some tech companies are choosing to stay private longer. Plus, we hear Horowitz's candid advice to some of the younger CEOs in his portfolio. I'm Brad Stone. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. So I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, modern Silicon Valley and some of the ways that your book applies. Mm -hmm. We're arguably coming to an end of a business cycle here. Uh, you, we, we might call it the, the unicorn cycle. Uh, yeah, well, I don't, I don't necessarily we mean... You know, <laughs> We're going into the decade unicorn cycle. I, right, perhaps. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of the big companies have gone public. Mm -hmm. There are a couple that are, that are coming, Airbnb, uh, Palantir. A lot of the companies that have gone public recently are underwater from their, mm -hmm. from their stock price, their IPO price. Was there? Do you think there was a cultural problem in Silicon Valley over these last two ten years of amazing growth that, that caused like weird IPO pricing? Well, per particularly maybe in the in the venture capital community and the in the global finance community. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. that caused weird valuations. Well, I, I think it was more of the. There's been a, a shift, uh, which is, um, you know, from kind of where a huge class of companies that would have been public now stay private longer. And this is uh, kind of starting with the regulations in the late 90s and through Sarbanes-Oxley's, Reg FD, all these kinds of things that just made it much less attractive to be a public company than it used to be, so people stay private longer. The problem with the private markets from a capital market standpoint is they're very illiquid, they don't trade very often, and so the pricing kind of mechanism makes it really a different thing than, and then you have these incentives from like, you know, firms like ours where you take money and you've got to invest it. And so I think it's more, you know, it's less to do with the companies and more to do with the investors. And I think that the criteria that the private market investors have been using are clearly not the same as the public market. And then you have new entities like SoftBank, which are, private investors that seek to replicate, you know, the complete function of the public markets. And, you know, so there are pricing distortions, I, I guess I would say. And broadly, I was sort of wondering if you felt like the, the, the community here in Silicon Valley has learned from the cultural mistakes in the past. And you do devote some time in the, in the book 
uh, to, to Uber, and you've, you've leveled some criticisms against yeah. Uber before, and we should say that Andreessen Horowitz is an, an investor, investor in Lyft. In yeah. Lyft. And <laughs> actually, we should also say that a Bloomberg LP, which owns uh, Bloomberg mm -hmm. Television, has invested in Andreessen Horowitz Fund, <laughs> yeah. so we'll yeah. clear that. Um, but what surprised me about your discussion of Uber in the book mm -hmm. is that you know not only did you you know take issue with Travis Kalanick's attempt to define a corporate culture for, for, for Uber, but his successor, Dara, mm -hmm. comes in, uh, rewrites the cultural values, and has mm -hmm. one that says, do the right thing, period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you thought that that was a little too ambiguous. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, well, like, first of all, like, with Travis, uh, as I point out, like, he was, you know, 98% fantastic on culture, like, one of the best CEOs we've had here. And then, you know, in the way I phrase it in the book is like, he had a great code, but he had a bug in the code. And that bug ended up being like a And really you say it's harder to fix bugs in culture than it is in code. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, <laughs> you got to deal with all the humans that have picked up that, that bug. Um, and, and so, you know, he had a lot of strengths, I, I think, you know, and then Dara came in and, you know, kind of corrected the bug, which was like a very, very difficult job. Um, but in terms of like getting back to the strength of that culture, it was a lot more vanilla. And I think do the right thing, period, <laughs> is a great example of that. And that like in business, like the difficult thing about ethics is what does that mean? <laughs> in business, it's like, well, is the right thing to, I promised that I'd hit this number to my investor when I took the money. Is it the right thing to hit that number? Is it the right thing to make sure I tell the exact truth to the customer so they're not confused on things? Like which is more the right thing? And uh, unless you're explicit about ethics and what you mean by it exactly, is very, very unlikely to land in the way you want it to land. Have you had examples in your portfolio companies where you've been disappointed in the cultural stewardship of your founders? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Can you give us an example? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to. I don't want to name names, but like, so you know, I had a conversation with um, one of our, one of our founders. You, you know, they they had. Uh, I would just say, like, a loose culture that, you know, looked like it was going to lead to harassment and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and I said, you know something? When I entered the business, we used to wear, like, suits to work. And they said, really? And I was like, do you know why we wear so suits to work? It's like, no idea. I was like, so we would know we were at work? We didn't think we were at home where we could like get drunk, like, you know, talk loosely. You can't, this is work. You gotta let people know they're at work. Um, you know, that's not okay. So I've had many of these conversations over the years, but um, you know, that's like, you know, you're 22 years old or whatever, you started a company, you have a great invention. What do you know about any of this kind of thing? And so that's why the book. I mean, and I think that, look, in defense of everybody, not just in the portfolio, but way beyond the portfolio, I haven't talked, spoken to a CEO who doesn't want to take culture seriously, but you know, knowing how to do that is a whole other matter. And it tends to come last on the yeah. list of priorities when it's live right. or die. Right, exactly. Has Silicon Valley gotten better, particularly with the trials of this last batch of startups? Um, I, look, I think that, I, I, I don't think it was like, that bad relative to, I mean, certainly relative to like the media industry, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, I mean, these guys, we didn't have anybody that bad. I don't feel like Silicon Valley was 
you know, the worst or like even necessarily on the bad side. But I do think we have a lot of inexperienced CEOs. And I think that um, because of that, people haven't had the knowledge, the tool set to kind of create the culture that they wanted. This is my conversation with Ben Horowitz, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz. Coming up, we dig deeper into Silicon Valley's diversity challenge and what lessons a modern day tech entrepreneur can learn from the Mongol leader Genghis Khan. I'm Brad Stone, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. What does corporate America have to learn from Shaka Senghor? Yes. He spent 19 years in, in a maximum yeah. security prison for committing a murder. Yeah, well, like a lot of it starts with day one, like new employee orientation in prison. So like he comes out of quarantine. Him and like the other newbies um, are basically in the rec area. And one prisoner walks up to another one and stabs him. And Shaka says to me, he's like, well, when that happened, we're all looking at each other like, what is this? And I had to ask myself, he said, could I do that? Because I couldn't do that at that point. And that's what I needed to do to survive in prison. And so I'm thinking, wow, that's exactly how people actually walk into work. You know, they come in and they're like, well, what do I have to do to succeed? How is that guy? Be how are the people who are ahead behaving? Because that's how I'm going to behave. I'm going to adopt that. And being able to understand that example um, was just powerful. But then he, you know, he <laughs> climbs up the ladder, like learns how to do, you know, like Create, literally changed lead, himself. one of the most powerful gangs in the state prison system. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he had to ask himself, and it was a really interesting thing because when people read his book, they're like, oh, it's a story of redemption, this and that and other, but like he didn't find Jesus, none of that happened. It was much more like a classic leadership thing. It's like, oh, now I'm in power okay, what's next? My whole life was climbing the career ladder. Now he climbed it in prison. And now I'm in charge. And like, who do I really want to be? Who do I want this organization to be? And then that process was really amazing how he changed himself. And then well, what did he do with this gang? gang that you feel like are, are fundamentally good leadership values? Well, I think, look, you know, if you if you're going to changing a culture takes real courage, you have to confront people on their very core beliefs about like what's going on and um and you know in that case like here you're talking about like a, a like a pretty violent society that's concluded they want to go like this way and uh you know culture requires that kind of leadership to move it into a different direction another unorthodox example in this very unorthodox business book is genghis khan yes uh, the mongol leader i had to google <laughs> this he killed 40 million people. Well, I think those numbers are okay. exaggerated. But he, he is praised for loyalty and inclusion, for inspiring mm -hmm. not just in his own troops, but for the people that he conquered, yes. loyalty to his cause. And I felt at some point, you know, in reading it, that it was a little like complimenting uh, Kim Jong-un <laughs> for his fashion sense, right? <laughs> he did some things well, but, you know, he, he's not. But, but tell me why, what, what, the, what, the, what, what lessons we should take from studying Genghis Khan. Yeah, so I, look, I think inclusion was one of the things I wanted to cover because I think it's something that um, people get very confused on. So a lot of, you know, and, and a lot of it is 
driven by um, how you want people to see you, not what you do, but how you want people to see you. So it's like, well, if I have this many women, this many minority, underrepresented minorities, then I'll get the gold star, you know, like I'm okay. And that's what I want, the gold star. But that's without thinking about, okay, culturally, how did you recruit those people? How did you get them in? And what is it going to be like for them to work there once they're there? Are they going to be first-class citizens? Or did, they, did you, like, run them through the side door so now they're not even treated correctly? And so, um, you know, and how effective is that going to be? How effective are they going to be? How effective are you going to be as an organization if you run it that way? And Genghis Khan is actually, um, interestingly, the prototype for bringing people in, really seeing them for their talents. Um, and he did this, you know, he would get the best engineers from China and so forth, and, and, you know, the most courageous guys from the other tribe. And he would really, even though they were from different cultures, different backgrounds, he would not only see who they were, but then when he brought them in, he treated them so much like his own that he would adopt the kids into his own family. So he would literally make them part of his family. So they were like, completely first-class citizens, and that enabled all kinds of military strategy uh, that was unmatched because everybody else was very hierarchical. He was completely a meritocracy, um, and he was really able to see the talent. And I think that in technology, in order to get to diversity the right way, you have to be able to see the talent. You have to be able to see what people who come from different backgrounds can do that you may not be able to do yourself. And that, that, that's why he was and you write the that, master of inclusion. Right, and you're right, <laughs> seeing that is more important than good intentions, than, a, than just appointing a diversity officer inside your company. You, although you guys do have portfolio companies that, that do that. So what do you hope Silicon Valley, which has struggled with diversity, can take from this? Yeah, so I, look, I think that um, it gets a deeper understanding. And it, you know, with the diversity officer there, then you know, I talk about this, but you know, I had this conversation with my friend Steve Stout, and he's like, Ben, I used to run Sony Urban Music. And I was like, that's great, Steve. I knew that. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but you're not listening to me. I ran Sony Urban Music, but it was really Sony Black Music, but they made me call it Urban Music because calling it Sony Black Music would have been racist. And I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. And he's like, no, what was really dumb was that, like, because it was called Sony Urban Music, I can only market in cities. Like, no black people lived in, like, the country. And I was like, wow, that's really dumb. And he's like, no, you're not listening to me. I was Sony urban music. I had Michael Jackson. What white people don't like Michael Jackson? It wasn't black music, it was music. And I was like, snap, that's exactly what we do with talent in we're Silicon Valley, right? People. We have urban talent, you know, okay, we're gonna run, we're gonna force a certain kind of talent that we don't understand through another door um, called the diversity door. Uh, and then we're not going to actually let it be all it can be. And the epilogue to that story is, as soon as they got rid of the whole industry distribution structure and urban music and all that, and it went to streaming, like black music, hip hop music, is like 95% of the top 100. And so they had restricted the whole thing. They had limited the whole talent thing by creating this special talent group. And I think we do a lot of that here. And so a lot of the point of that chapter is, well, like, how do you get away from that? And how do you make it just talent and not urban talent? Ben, you use one other major example in the book, uh, the, the Japanese samurai, and how they contemplate death as a way to focus <laughs> yes. themselves and find meaning. Right. And, I, and I was wondering, and you kind of suggest that maybe entrepreneurs mm -hmm. contemplate the, the death of their companies. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you do that, if you, have, if you meditate upon the, the disastrous end mm -hmm. of this venture capital firm and Dries and Horowitz. Well, I do. You know, like... And, um, you know, with the samurai, it, it comes from this place of 
okay, do this like it's the last time you're going to do it. And if this was the last time you ever, you know, and it's everything from like take a bath, <laughs> like did you do it right? To this day, like Jap Japanese craftsmanship is, you know, I would say best in the world on like a million different crafts. <laughs> it's crazy how good they are at things. And it comes from this kind of cultural idea. And I think for us, um, it really is about, and I talk to, I teach new employee orientation here, and I say, look, you know, what you're going to remember isn't like what deals we did or this and that and the other. You're going to remember what it felt like to work here, how when we worked with companies, how that made them feel, whether that made them better or worse, whether that made them like more anxious and arbitrary or like better leaders. And so everything that we do, you got to keep that in mind. Like when this is over, what was it like? Um, so yeah, I adopted that <laughs> from the samurai. I, th I, think it's, I think it's a powerful way to think about your job. And when you wake up and like, okay, if this is the last day we do this, how are we going to do it? Ben Horowitz, author of What You Do Is Who You Are. Thanks for joining us. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Chang. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I'm Brad Stone, senior executive editor and head of technology coverage for Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.